Hello! The podcast is still officially on hiatus, but one thing I have been able to fit into my schedule without taking away too much from my writing time, uh, which is going well, by the way. I'm halfway through another story outline for the novel, and it feels good. I can't wait to tell you about it when it's all done. But yeah, one thing I've been able to fit in is once a month on the New Edge Sword and Sorcery Discord, myself and a couple of others uh, form a panel to discuss a contemporary sword and sorcery short story. My feeling is the classics get discussed a lot, the current stuff not as much, and yet the current stuff I feel deserves as much conversation as anything written in days past. So if you think you would enjoy hearing a group panel discussion of a story, please keep listening. And I'll be playing catch-up, so it'll be a new one of these uh, once a week for three weeks, and then I'll put up the new one monthly as that happens. Somewhat fittingly, given the last official episode of So I'm Writing a Novel, this first talk is all about a story from Howard Andrew Jones's new Hanover collection, which I explain in detail in the actual recording, so let's just do a hard cut to that. Alright, uh, welcome friendly person who maybe has tripped over this on YouTube. Uh, there'll be no faces here, but that's okay. You can just enjoy this like a podcast and a tab in the background. I hope you have at least 30 tabs open. If so, you're my kind of people. My name is Oliver Brackenbury. I'm the editor and publisher of New Edge Sword and Sorcery magazine. With me here, I have Jay Wolf with many accomplishments and Graham, uh, who is the uh, one of the three co-editors of Old Moon Quarterly magazine. We were going to be joined by two other people, but last they couldn't make it last minute. So it'll be the three of us, uh, plus any um, questions we choose to answer from the chat discussing The Second Death of Hanovar, a contemporary sword and sorcery tale by Howard Andrew Jones, originally published in Tales from the Magician's Skull, number three. If you're not familiar with that magazine, I highly recommend checking it out. It has been recently republished in a new form as one of many chapters in the interlinked series of stories known as Lord of a Shattered Land. That uh, I came out what like a few weeks ago. I should I should know these facts. Anyway, it came out quite recently, uh, and is being published by Bain Books as the first in a series of five, potentially seven books, if it sells well enough. And I want to read as much of Hanover as I can get my hands on. So please, folks, buy enough books to justify those extra two. Uh, yeah. So um, sorry, I did a terrible job of introductions there. Jay, would you like to introduce yourself, and then we'll go to Brand. Um, that's actually a perfectly good introduction. Um, I'm an editor and. Uh, um... I don't know, bon vivant of uh, various <laughs> forms of uh, science fiction and fantasy. Um, most of my work is work you do not actually see. I, I work in the backgrounds as an editor for uh, a few different people, including Uncanny Magazine. Awesome. Well, it's vital work. And uh, Graham, who the hell are you? Uh, certainly. Uh, I'm Graham Wilcox. I work as the one of the assistant editors at Old Moon Quarterly. Um, in my uh, work in life, I suppose, I uh, am a freelance editor, and I teach college-level English. Okay, so uh, yeah, I guess I'll, I'll take the lead here. Um, yeah, so this story is pretty important to me because it was my introduction kind of to the skull, uh, right? Issue 3 was the first issue I picked up. I was just, I'd heard about this thing, you know, I was curious about it, mainly through, I think, Goodman Games, the publisher. Um and it was also uh, one of the first contemporary SMS stories I'd read. Up until that point, I'd mostly just read the classics. I wasn't really yet familiar with the contemporary scene. So that's kind of cool. And it was my introduction to Howard Andrew Jones, who um, I was so impressed by the story in the magazine that at the time I was thinking, this is in 2020, at the time I was thinking about starting a magazine, but I hadn't found a focus yet. And so I emailed Howard and was like, hey, man, um, can I just send you a few questions? I'm thinking about starting a magazine. I don't know. 
And he was very generous and actually gave me an hour of his time on the phone that I've uh, never forgotten. So that was pretty cool. So I'm, I'm definitely predisposed to liking the story because of a warm personal connection. But I can't stress enough that if the story stank, I still would not have put it up for discussion. <laughs> There's only so many ways you can kind of dance around that when that's the case, no matter how much you like the person. So, yeah, I really want to highlight and underline that I think it's a well-written story and that I'm really impressed by what Howard's built starting by publishing this and a few other hand of our stories in the magazine, getting us to now the series of books. Uh, Jay, uh, when was your first encounter with the story? Um, you know what? I have to say it was probably also in the magazine, but that was long enough ago that I had completely, like, I had completely purged it until uh, you approached me to possibly do this panel. Uh, what was it, about two weeks ago? <laughs> Something like that. So, um, yeah, so it had been a while, and I uh, went back to it in the form of the novel this time i just i didn't have time to track down what i had done with any of my copies of anything so i was like all right yeah. guess i'm buying a book on kindle this week <laughs> oh well thank you i appreciate you doing yeah. that no absolutely i um i feel very strongly that it's important to support these types of um, these types of publications because it's uh it, it's rough out there <laughs> <laughs> Uh, yeah, no, I mean, the scene is still very young um, and is growing and having some growing pains, which uh, I'll just leave that illusion on the table. Um, Graham, uh, what was your first encounter with this story? So similar to yourself, I encountered it first in the third issue of Tales from the Magician's Skull, which I think was I think I bought a whole bunch of them all at once or they were bought for me by as like a birthday present, I think. Nice. But yeah, so I encountered it there and excuse me. And I was impressed with how Howard really captured the feeling of some of the texts that I know inspired him. The feeling of, you know, Conan um, and Harold Lamb, kind of, I feel like, his two biggest inspirations. And I, was, and I enjoyed how he managed that, but still kept his own voice in a way that felt reasonably new. Right. It felt, to me, it felt like it accommodated the old while still advancing something different, at least different enough. Yeah, I hear you. And I, I had to learn of Lamb later, proselytized actually by Howard. <laughs> um, and uh, so it took me a little minute to figure out the influences there. But I mean, to Robert E. Howard, yeah, like so many people tilt at that windmill. And I think a big difference between the people who maybe make things that are less impressive and what Howard Andrew Jones has achieved is that I think Howard looks at technique, whereas a lot of people who just kind of like put the word thews in a bunch. Do you know what I mean? They look for like signifiers of Robert E. Howard rather than like what he's really doing. Uh, what, what do you guys think? Does that make sense to you? Uh, that makes complete sense. And that was actually one of the things that's on my little post-it is the um, I, I had made a, just a short little list of things that I was like, well, that's interesting. And um one of the things that I thought was was really cool here is that he understands the way that Howard, like, Howard didn't really set out to write barbarian stories. He set out to write Conan stories. And so Conan takes on different shapes depending on what the story wants from him, if that makes sense. Mm -hmm. And so I feel like, I feel like, Howard Andrew Jones got that in terms of like the hero takes on some slightly different forms, even just in the shape of this story. 
And that's actually one of the things I really liked. And I thought that he did a pretty good job of transforming that mode of storytelling. Um, just because, I mean, you know, it, with Hanavar's circumstances, and I mean, I think we should probably include a short overview of the story. Uh, and probably not the best person to give that, just because I, I have a lot of book bunting in my head right now. <laughs> but uh, in general, just like the 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 transformation that he undergoes within this story, I thought was just really quite well executed. Yeah, and it's neat that you mentioned that because something I'd love to come back to is how in this, like in a lot of the Hanover stories, Hanover, because he's on the run, is frequently pretending to be someone else. Yes. But it felt like this story of all the Hanover stories, like I just finished the book last week, um, and of all the Hanover stories I've read so far, this one had the most pretending going on, the most theater. Like, I don't know if I would go so far as to call it a theme or a motif or whatever, but um, yeah, there was, a, there was a lot of that going on. It wasn't just Hanover, you know, having to feign being someone else and, and change modes uh, constantly. Um, Graham, I'm going to be a jerk and put you on the spot. How would you summarize this story for those who aren't familiar with it? Certainly. So the story begins, I believe, with Hanavar encountering a former, I believe, subordinate of his, uh, Jerissa, who is now working as a gladiator in a Durvan. And the Durvans are kind of a Roman Empire sort of culture. So... Uh, as, as the very quick backdrop, Hannibal is very much a Hannibal Barca-type character. He was part of a civilization called Valanus. They are similar to Carthage. They are fighting against the Durban Empire, which is the Roman Empire. They, similar to the Carthaginians in our own history, they lost. And so uh, Hannibal is trying to rescue the scattered remnants of his people and prevent them from being essentially genocided by the victorious Durbans. So, got that out of the way. In this story, he is trying to, as similar to most of the stories in Lord of the Shattered Land, he's trying to rescue some of his countrymen and get a little bit of revenge on the side by fighting against the Durbans themselves, and I believe at the end slaying somebody who's meant to be a sort of Fantasy, rep fantasy representative for Cato the Elder, who very famously would end all of his speeches in real life with Carthage must be destroyed. Anyways, so the story itself, he goes to rescue his fellow Durbans. He meets this woman who's now a gladiator. They, I believe, concoct a plan to escape or to rescue some of his their fellow Volani. Yeah, it's like her, one other of the actual yes. warrior women, and then like a bunch of women who are just regular Balani, but they've been dressed up to be like them, if I remember correctly. Like they're sort of false warrior women. Yeah, the L-tier. L-tier, yes. yeah. Yes, and so they go through a, a whole bunch of rigmarole, which ends in a fairly fun reenactment of a battle, which would be a sort of common gladiatorial spectacle in real-life Rome, and they end up I believe at the very end he kills uh, the Cato, the elder character, who I believe is called the Consul Kayaks in this. Yes. Correct. Um, yes. And so uh, there's quite a bit that I'm skipping over, um, which is the, the sort of adventure and, you know, the real meat of the story, the, the sword and sorcery part, which I think involves quite a bit of uh, trickery and evasive action on Hanover's part and on Jerissa's. 
Yeah, and one of the bigger fantastic elements that uh, you encounter in Hanavar's stories. Um, yeah, no, this this is this is interesting to read um, in the context of the greater book. I think it's one of the you know if 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 you, you Howard has frequently described his structure as being like a season of television, right? Where each chapter is a self-contained story for the most part, but you know it kind of high fives the story that came before it and the story that comes after with a little bit of like showing how it all connects together to build to essentially a kind of season finale in the final chapter. But this particular story felt to me almost like, um, you know, like, what was it? Uh, Balsar Galactica would sometimes have movies to tell bigger stories in between seasons or jam yes. them on the side. <laughs> they sure <Yeah>. did. <laughs> I mean, other shows have done that, I guess, but that's, that comes to mind. This one felt like a movie scale or almost movie scale story, uh, just because of, of the sheer size of what's happening within it. And, uh, I, I'm probably wrong, but it felt like one of the longer ones uh, to me. Not like, you know, ooh, a drag, don't get me wrong. But um, yeah, it was like 20 pages in The Skull, which is a two-column magazine, 50 pages in the book. Yeah, I think it might have been one of the slightly longer ones. And that makes sense to me just because, A, there's a lot of stuff that happens. And yeah. B, um, you know, Howard said more than once that he, he finds um, ten to 12,000 words, like more of like a novelette length to be kind of a sweet spot for sword and sorcery. Uh, whereas like a lot of people you know will be like oh these stories read so quickly they must be shorter like i've frequently stunned when i'm reminded how long uh robert e howard's conan stories were i always think they're like five or six thousand words and they turn out to be like well not more novelette length um how do you uh jay feel about that sweet spot length how did how did the length of this story feel to you oh this this felt just about right as far as that goes to me um i did not look to see what my word count was because when I was reading it this week, at least, uh, I was reading it on uh, Kindle from my phone most of the time. So the actual like page count was sort of their arbitrary distribution of where their page markers are. Um, but yeah, the, the reading length was, was very classic to me in that sense. Like, I am, uh, I'm really familiar with all of the... Um, the stories that were collected in, like, the... Uh, Oh, shoot. And of course, now it's escaping me. Um, Lynn Carter's whole series that he did. Um, the the um, for the, the members of his uh, goofy little uh, saga guild, um, most of those are novelette to novella length items. And so that's sort of like. To me, it's almost like the traditional length of sword and sorcery in some ways. It's it's not like the only length that can be done, but it it has a certain amount of of room that you can get more complicated things onto the page than you can with something that's a, a, a very strict short story length. Fair. And how do you feel about that, Graham? I agree. I think it was a great length. I think in terms of the sweet spot for sword and sorcery stories, I very much agree with uh, Howard Jones. I think 10 to you know, 12 to 15K seems to be about the sweet spot. Which that's where all pretty much all of my stories end up, but I think that's just because I'm long-winded. Um, <laughs> <laughs> this one didn't oh. feel like this one didn't feel like it dragged on for me at all. So I think I'm right there with both of you on, on that score. Yeah, it felt like the right length for this story, and uh, at no point did it certainly feel like it was dragging. It, keep, it, it kept changing, you know, even though it stays entirely within the city. The immediate setting kept leaping leap around and moving and things were kept happening, you know, so it all worked out well for me. And I like that it built to a climax in an amphitheater. Like, that's just badass. Uh, I, I find when in my writing, I tend to land somewhere in the like five to six K 
realm. And that was definitely a big part of what shaped my guidelines for New Age Sword and Sorcery magazine. Um, if I remember correctly, the OMQ, the limit is six grand? Correct. Uh, 6K, which is right. almost entirely a, a budgetary restriction on our I was, unfortunately. I was going to say, you know, there's definitely a part of me that's like, man, you know, if we had, if we had like money, no object, what, how long would our stories be in our magazines, right? Like... <laughs> It it depends for sure. Um, uh, being a person who's doing that kind of math right now, um, uh, definitely thinking about it in terms of like, well, how many stories can you get on the page with that with that page rate? And it's yeah, you have to be very careful with with balancing like the the number of pages that you're going to engage people to read with uh, the amount of money you're willing to pay them. So, <laughs> um, but yeah, that's it. I would say that for this story in particular, I think that. I think it the like you were saying like the set the set pieces move along swiftly enough that I feel like the length you don't feel the length of it as you're reading it because it it moves around enough that you're and, and I mean that's pretty t typical of a, of a good sword and sorcery adventure is mm -hmm. that you you're not spending a lot of time in any one given place without without movement without action and that's that's something that that this story did really well actually i thought the um the specific moving parts getting him from the scenes in the opening where he's meeting up with the centurion jerissa and um moving through his his uh his building of i want to say I, he I hesitate to say like side characters but um antiris in particular i thought was really cool um as a character that that helps him out and becomes sort of his companion um that i don't know i'm trying to think of a way to phrase that but that was just one of those things that that stuck out and i made a little note about it in my in my kindle so of course i didn't actually take notes it's just highlighted and i'm like oh yeah right i remember that <laughs> That's all good. And yeah, I mean, Antares, there you go, an actor. Uh, so yes. yeah, we come back to like pretending and theater being such a big part of the story. And I, my, I'm, while I'm on it, I may as well mention one of my favorite lines to really get across how Consul Kayax, uh, the, you know, the major villain behind everything, uh, sucks, <laughs> is the fact that he doesn't really understand the needs of theater and storytelling. That when they're watching the fake, you know, um, sacking of Alanis, the um I forget the name of the character shoot, I didn't get his name down, but like Theris the, the, is the um Theris is the uh local governor, right? The governor, yeah. Yeah, like Kayaks is complaining about like minor inaccuracies or whatever that are obviously a result of trying to heighten the drama of the performance to the you know in the theater. And uh, yeah, he the local governor just keeps having to explain and he's like, Well, uh, you know, um uh, where was the line here? Yeah, well it is theater. We are expected to imagine, <laughs> you know. Yes. And I and I just think, like, what a great way to make, especially someone who is a reader, uh, lose sympathy for a character <laughs> than to be like, yeah, they suck at understanding stories. They're they're ale retentive. They're a pedant. <laughs> like, yes, no, I, th I think that's a perfect way to, um, yeah, to create that alienation between the reader and the and the various characters on screen. Uh, Graham, how did you feel about the use of perspective in this? Like, I, you know, you were mentioning how it's very obvious that. Howard gets Robert E. Howard and uh, you know uh, Howard Lamb. So, so many Howards in this. Sorry, uh, <laughs> uh, and I, I feel like one way he got that really was opening on someone else's perspective, so that you can have them see the protagonist, you know, and and have us see them through their eyes and have that be like building their legend almost. By that way, what, what do you think about that? I think he does a great job 
using the perspective to give us a look at how the various people involved. I, I, I've spent a lot of time writing like white paper esque stuff recently, so I want to call them stakeholders, but call them <laughs> characters as they are. As they are. Um, the various characters who are invested in Hanabar's fate in this story, you get a really good picture of how they see him. You can see how Jerissa has a sort of awe for him, and even Kayax has a sort of healthy respect, if not fear, for his old opponent. Um, yeah, there's like a reverence there that was really like noticeable. Yeah, it's one of the things that he starts nitpicking, I think, in the uh, in the performance itself. He's saying, oh, he's playing Hanabar like a fool. He wasn't a fool. He was one of the greatest foes our empire's ever had, or something along those lines. Yes. Um, <laughs> yeah, I highlighted that line. <laughs> yeah. So, I think that's a really good use of perspective to give us different looks at a character. And that's something that Robert E. Howard certainly used in his Conan stories. There's several stories where we get relatively little time with Conan as an actual point of view character or I suppose more likely as a character who we are more closely following since he does most of, the, most of them in kind of like third person Omni um, and I think that that's a wise decision when you have a character that is as competent uh, I guess I would say as Hanavar or as Conan it can be really hard to follow that character all the time because then it just kind of becomes, oh, you know, Hanavar wins, Hanavar wins, Conan wins, that sort of thing. So yeah. This gives us a, a little bit of relief from the sort of the competence porn that can sometimes arise in these situations. Oh, that's a good point. I, I noticed, um, I, I agree with that, that completely in terms of like not wanting to hold too tight to that because you. You do need to, you do need to see what it looks like from the outside to be that character. Um, oh, she's, I'm sorry. I I had a thought there and it, and it has evaporated. So, <laughs> sorry. well, that's okay. I I'll, I'll add something and maybe if you think of it, uh, by all means, uh, jump in. I was just gonna say that what's kind of neat about the story in particular, right? Like. You know, the whole thing of Hanavar is we're meeting him later in life. We're not meeting him young, just come down from the mountains, ready to be a thief kind of thing, like with Conan. And so it's not just that, you know, he's very competent, but also he's been around long enough to build a legend. And it can be rough when you read a book or a short story sometimes, and all the characters are like, oh my God, have you heard of you heard of you heard about this person? They're so badass. They're so badass. And you're like, all right, already, like, show me the person. But with Hanavar, I don't know, man, it works. Maybe it's just a case of, you know, doing it well versus doing it poorly. But also, I think with this story in particular, I really like that his legend, you're seeing it be uh, interpreted in a variety of ways, including the buzzkill uh, <laughs> console kayaks being like, well, it wasn't quite like that, actually. But then you also even get Hanavar being like, well, this this seems kind of nuts, like, you know, popping up in the middle of it, performance of his own legend, <laughs> you know? Um, so something about all that I found made it uh, beyond palatable and brought it into very enjoyable having a character where I'm being told over and over again, like how great they are in between seeing them be great. And oh, that's, was... that was the thing. That was the thing. It was that the competence was believable because we're not, it's, it, you're seeing it and you're seeing it through other people's eyes. So you're, you're being able to look at it and, and see objectively like, ah, okay. So he's taking control of this particular situation, um, which you don't always get if you're spending all of that time tightly in the character's, Point of view the the competence isn't as interesting sometimes mm -hmm. and also this actually brings me to something i want to discuss with you too uh, i really dig like 
the well, what do you guys think it makes it so compelling when the opponents of a protagonist have respect for them, right? Like a character that only gets mentioned in this story, but it comes you know, spoiler, I guess, but it's not really a spoiler. Uh, he gets he gets a story where he's important later in the book, uh, Consul Cyprian, which is a name that Hanavar lifts as part of his cover, where he's like, oh yes, I'm here on behalf of Consul Cyprian to buy these women and definitely not spirit them away to freedom. Uh, <laughs> and Consul Cyprian is mentioned in the story as being, uh, you know, the one general who beat him. And he later gets a whole story based around him in the book where Consul Cyprian is like the sort of uh, the archetype that I really enjoy with the the um, equally competent opponent who he's on the other side. But if he wasn't, you get the impression him and the protagonist would be friends, you know, and you get a mini version of that, I feel, in this story, not just the mention of Cyprian, but also when um, he gets ambushed, Hanover, at uh, the opening to that tunnel system. And I've got his name here, uh, the the leader of the group who ambushed him of Durban soldiers. Uh, come on, Oliver, where is it? It's like Optio something something. Shoot, well it's not. Oh, Septim uh, Septimusir first Optio uh, Optar. I think that's what I got here. Is the ambush leader, um, and he like offers Hannibal. He's like, hey man, I'm here to kill you. That's happening, but. I'll offer you some poison so you can have like a less shitty death, a more honorable death, a more de death you've earned by merit of your prowess and so forth, uh, rather than just like dumping you down a hole. <laughs> Although, shoot, am I getting mixed up? Does he does he think he's Hanover? Does he think Hanover is his cover? You know, what? I actually uh, let me see. Graham, do you remember? I believe he thinks that Hannibal is a Durban legionary. Right, yeah. right, right. Shoot, I think I just conflated things because I'm so like hot for Cyprian and think he's such a cool character, and I love that dynamic. <laughs> Whoops. No worries. <laughs> well, uh... even so. <laughs> Shoot, yeah, Kevin's informing me in the chat like that is correct. All right, well, uh, <clears throat> I retract that statement. Although I still think Cyprian is cool. <laughs> <laughs> it is good and i like the archetype where you know whatever hey doop 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 um i guess i just felt sorry i felt like i was having a galaxy brain moment with the whole thing of like the legend of hanover and how important a role it like it's a character almost unto itself uh to use a trite phrasing um in this story and other stories of hanover it's always such a big deal um but it's handled so deftly that it's very enjoyable rather than some kit stories where you just feel like the narrator is tapping you on the shoulder being like this guy's badass over and over <laughs> Yeah, I mean, I think part of that too is also just that because we're because we're being introduced to a middle-aged character who feels middle-aged, like mm -hmm. he like you feel the you feel the weight of his life experience a lot more naturally than you do in a lot of these kind of stories. And um I think it is partially just like some of it is some of it is that we are made to infer like okay, well if he's survived this many battles, obviously he's this kind of soldier, but it, it comes across in a way that has verisimilitude which is not easy to achieve. And I, I've been putting, trying to put my finger on like why it has that very small too, like all week. And I, I don't necessarily know that I can, can crack it, but I, I have a feeling it's just that the, that, that thing about competency where you can be perfectly competent, but if you are in a situation where that competency doesn't help you, it has a tendency to be endearing. Um, Mm. I got that from a conversation with um, one of my instructors at VP a number of years ago, and it was one of those things that kind of stuck with me, is that 
when we when we seek out characters for for what gets called competency porn, um, when we see a character that gets called competency porn instead of that they are like competent in their own right, usually what that means is that that competency does not feel earned in some way. And so um, I feel like Hanovar's competency comes across as very well earned, if only because the scenes that we see him do these things, um, you get the impression he's done them before. <laughs> You get the impression that this isn't the, this isn't the first time he's had to you know break into maybe not a coliseum but you know he's like not the first time that he's had to break through uh, enemy enemy lines with uh, with a performance of a character. Yeah, uh, or when he even when he's able to just like command people and they're like oh, I don't know why I'm doing this but okay sure and you're like well he was a general. Yes, exactly. Yeah, you you get the impression that like he's he's taking leadership not like necessarily because he um, he just is a leader. It just the, the leadership comes out of how he how he interacts with people, and sooner or later he kind of ends up uh, voluntold into that position, if nothing else. <laughs> how do you feel about that, Graham? Like, what uh, what do you, what do you feel is there that earns Hanavar's confidence? I think it's the sense. In, in a way of Hanavar's charisma and likability, which I think is something that a lot of, if we want to call them like Clonan characters, yes, right. Hanavar has a very sort of earnest and I think mature charisma to him, mm-hmm. and we're sh- we're shown that almost we're never really told, oh, you know, he's so charismatic, but we're really shown that people seem to like him, and he is genuinely kind and empathetic and nice to most the many people that he meets tries to help them and i think that that is something that howard does very well and i think he draws upon his own experience in that at least my experience with howard is that he's been very helpful and, and kind and, and nice and i think that's if i don't want to speak for the whole sword and sorcery community but i think that's a pretty common perception of him um and i think that that is something that he can draw on from his own experience that helps give the character some life in a way that a lot of Clonans don't have. I think that Robert E. Howard wrote Conan and invested a lot of, if not himself, of the people that he knew and perhaps of the person that he wanted to be into Conan. And, you know, Robert E. Howard, he was alive in the 30s. He's uh, in very rural Texas. He had a sort of rough and tumble upbringing. He had all sorts of, you know, the whole masculinity of the 1930s man, especially the rural Texan man, all up in there. And that in, he invested that into Conan. And I think what a lot of modern Clonans miss is that the authors who are writing them don't necessarily have that, I suppose, that anecdotal experience within their own lives. And so when they start writing it, what they're writing is their perception of what that would be based on how they've read it in other fiction books. And I think what Howard does that helps lend the, and I'm talking about Howard Jones now, of course. Yes. <laughs> but what he does that lends a lot of authenticity to the to Hanavar's charisma is draw upon both his own experience being I, I, kind of a leader in the sword and sorcery community himself and I think also, and this is I'm pretty much taking this from what he's told me in the last interview I did with him um, he did a lot of research on soldiers in World War II especially those who won like the Medal of Honor um, and I think that the sort of selflessness, because a lot of them uh, obviously would have died doing the, uh, earning that reward and a lot of it's often given for sort of selfless sacrifice, from what I understand. And so I think that element of selfless sacrifice that he gleaned from his research, I think, really shines through with the character itself. 
Yeah, that's that's actually a really good observation, I think. Um, it's again, it's it adds to the verisimilitude. Like you feel you feel like you don't feel like you're being sold a bill of goods that this character does what he says he does, you know what I mean? Like it's 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 very easy, especially with like uh, as we've been putting it, the the colonians for them to be like, all right, well, I'm writing about a barbarian, and it's like, okay, but that's that's not the first that's not the first thing you should be writing about there. <laughs> um, well, or even yeah. if it is, it's like uh, it's just, it's, the, it's the difference between just um, trying to evoke shallow signifiers of stuff that you've enjoyed without thinking too hard about what it was you were really enjoying beneath the surface, right? And then that's, like as. <laughs> definitely yeah. closer to what i mean is just like the like you're not writing just a barbarian story you know like you're not writing just a warrior story you knowing what's underneath that is is something that's really important and i, I yeah. feel like that that came through in this yeah absolutely there's a, there's a deep sincerity to the character uh that really earns a lot of love for me and makes me be like yeah okay i get it when i get why people are reacting this way to him yeah um Okay. So uh, I feel like I've been leading the conversation a lot. Graham, was there anything particular in your notes or thoughts that you wanted to bring up for discussion? Um, certainly. I think... So I did... This will sound... Uh, well, just... Oh, and I'm sorry. Can I ask you to just, like, eat the microphone? I'm having trouble. You're, you're still kind of quiet. Uh, certainly. Thank you. Um, there we go. All right. I think we've said a lot of what we really liked about the story, and I don't, I, I don't want us to, to tear the story apart, obviously, because I don't think it, de I don't think it deserves that, and I don't know that I could tear the story apart, right? And that's just not <laughs> right. how I want to do. That's not how I want to do things. But I was wondering if anybody had things that perhaps didn't work as well for them in the story. Perhaps points where they were, you might have thought, I wanted maybe a little bit more from this, or perhaps a little bit less from that, something along those lines. Um, if you guys want, I can I can volunteer and, and give my terrible opinions first, uh, and, and break the ice in that respect. But if anyone... uh, yeah, you're welcome to go first. Although I will put in the preamble that we should, you know, and, and Howard I think would agree with us here. I won't speak for him, but I'm just I'm guessing based on conversations uh, that we have to be willing to think critically about contemporary SNS and not just fawn over this and that. Uh, if this thing's gonna you know get more legs under it, so yeah, don't 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 worry about qualifying remarks. I think it's clear that we all respect Howard in this story. <laughs> oh yeah, I wouldn't have agreed to do this if I didn't really think that it was worth the time. <laughs> um, so, yeah, so yeah, go ahead, Graham. Certainly, um, I think the one of the things that I that I would have liked was perhaps a little bit more interiority and i know that it's very much not the style of the book and so that's pretty much a personal bugbear of my own but i did feel like perhaps not hanavar's own interiority but perhaps jerissa's or, or somebody else's i did feel a slight remove from some of the characters that i typically that it, it that makes it hard for me to inhabit the story in the way that i prefer to um and I, and I understand why Howard does that. It's kind of the style that he's writing. He's purposefully trying to write in the tradition of Robert E. Howard and, uh, and Harold Lamb, um, mm -hmm. who, who wrote with that remove from their characters. Um, but I did feel like if I was kind of wishlisting the story, then I would have preferred a, a little bit more, maybe a little bit more insight into kind of the headspace of some of the characters, I suppose, especially Hanavar himself or Jerissa. Hmm. Yeah, I'm with you on Jerissa for sure, and I think part of that's just because I really was intrigued by her. 
I thought, yeah, I, I really I thought there was some more story there. I would have loved to have heard, although again, we've already said there's a lot that happens in the story. <laughs> but that was definitely a want of mine. With Hanover, I'm always okay with there being less interiority with him, especially because, and again, this is me being shaped by having recently finished the book. It is kind of an arc with him that he has trouble opening up. And he slowly gets better at that in large part because of Antiers. So I suppose knowing what comes after the story, I can have, have that influence my opinion on it. But in isolation, I can totally, you know, if I don't ever read the story, I could totally see myself also wanting to have a little more uh, time in his head. Uh, what do you think, Jay? Oh, actually, that was one of the things that I was going to bring up. So I'm kind of glad. It's interesting because we're talking about this as contemporary sword and sorcery, contemporary, you know, in, in conversation with other contemporary stories. That is a, a really common mode that I think we're all very accustomed to is, mm. is the mode of interiority. Um, and so, you know, having it be that it's, it's, it has a very retro effect on the story, which I don't necessarily know that that's a problem for me personally. Um, I mean, I, I feel like if anything, um, knowing that the, the later stories in that, in the, in the book sort of start to bring some of that depth forward um i'm not i'm not quite as concerned there i would i would absolutely like i was nodding the entire time both of you guys said more of more of jurissa just in general honestly <laughs> i feel like i feel like there was definitely some material left on the table there that uh um could easily have been developed even further but um just if only because there the level of competency issue or like that we've that we've kind of been kicking around back and forth about Hanavar. Um, you know, there's there's also this whole this whole squadron of women that are supposed to be these mega warriors. And while I realize that most of the ones that are in this current version are performing a role, because they're all, I think uh the quote was that most of them are uh bread makers and so on. <laughs> yeah, there's only actually two L tier, Jerissa and one other. Uh, but Sergeant, I think that uh, there I think Sierra. there's a there's a story there that's that's kind of off the table. And I realize that some of that's just like, you know, the spoils of war, as it were. But but yeah, mm -hmm. I think there was definitely like an opportunity there that was kind of missed. Um one of the thoughts that I had while I was reading this, and I'm, I know I'm not the only one, uh, and in fact, I know from at least one interview that he's done that he's very aware of this, is the sort of Captain America effect of Hanavar, in mm. the sense that he is very, um, he is a very upright, he's a very, he has a very, like, um, I'm trying to think of the right word for it. Like, there's a, there's a sort of, like, nationalist, noblest thing going on with him which is not a problem i need to like highlight that like that's not actually a problem um it's a thing that that just sort of happens with a character whose motivations are largely noble and like the the emphasis is on on his desire to do the right thing and i just thought it was sort of interesting because it 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 comes across very differently in a sword and sorcery story than it does in the comics. I mean, I, I have a, a long background in comics, so that's one of those things where I notice things that, that are getting mm. transplanted from other environs. And so um, it was just sort of interesting to me. Paragon, there we go. Kevin Beckett offers Paragon in the chat, and that is a great word. That's, that is, that's, I would say that was the word I was hunting for, and, uh, and then I don't sound quite so silly. Um, 
but yeah, so that that sort of paragon of virtue thing definitely um again, I don't know that it was a problem, but it was something that i I kind of felt like it was it was drummed into me several times without as many words um, well, you know as I was reading. I think there's a parallel almost in a way to between the paragon thing and the less interiority, more like retro classic like heroes kind of at a remove almost. Oh, absolutely. Um, I don't think that I don't think that those those issues are uh, I think those issues are in conversation with each other for sure. Yeah, yeah. And it's just this kind of funny thing where, you know, in some ways, the story can be almost a victim of its success in the sense that like we are so intrigued by the characters. We want to know more. And when we're yes. not told more, we're like, God damn it. <laughs> like, <laughs> This you is know, how. Nice... <laughs> Sorry, I, I, I meant to. Okay. I, I was. Uh, all right, I was just going to say, like, this is how fanfic starts. I was, yeah, this is how fanfic starts. <laughs> this is how you get like spinoff novellas, right, for big fanfic. series, <laughs> right? Like, you know, um, I would totally read a Jarissa like novelette or novella just on the side. Like, what does she get up to after this story? <laughs> yeah, I mean, we should know. We know she goes to New Balance, but like, we literally, watch. we literally. She's she's literally on a boat waving goodbye, and we yeah. never see her again on this in this novel, anyways. That I know yeah. of. Yeah, yeah, no. And uh, while well, a spoiler, you, you don't see her again. Uh, <laughs> no! But that's not a big surprise given the arc of the book. Um, Truly, but, Truly, uh, it's not a surprise. Yeah, but even so, like it's just one of those things. Like it can be a storytelling opportunity later. But uh, I guess I feel like okay. So with the Paragon thing, I feel like I'm ready to read about a Paragon because oh, I'm, I'm very ready for it too. To be clear. <laughs> Yeah, I feel like, you know, I'm 40. I, I came of age in sort of uh, very late 80s through 90s and early 2000s. And over that period was when there was a lot of come back to comic books, right? You think of The Dark Knight Returns oh, yeah. and Watchmen and all that stuff. It was when the sort of Paragon storytelling of the 70s was getting the air let out and novelty was brought in by being like, what if Batman was a grumpy old son of a bitch? You know, what if uh, superheroes were fascist? You know, all those ideas, which all had merit and were good to explore. Uh, and then we got, you know, gritty, gritty, grim, grim, grim stuff in comics and uh, eventually grim dark and so on and so forth, which uh, I, I sorry, Graham, I know it's an old axe. Like not all grim dark is super grim. Um, oh, I was just going to say, like, I'm I'm a I'm a not all grim dark also. Yeah. But but you know what I'm saying? Like this, this this idea of like, what if heroes were bad? What if Professor X was secretly a son of a bitch and doing terrible things? What if this, that and the other thing um, has has been explored so thoroughly and like various heroic archetypes and various genres have been deconstructed so thoroughly in over the course of most of my reading life that I'm down with reading about a paragon. Plus, um, you know, again, I'm not spoiling anything. Like, I'm not saying Hanavar gets secretly revealed later to have like murdered 10 babies in his sleep. But, you know, Hanavar, as he's, you know, we get to know him a little bit at a time progressively over the course of the book. And there's actually a sample chapter book, too, that gets into some neat stuff. Um, you know, Hanover gets death and Hanover as if not committed, you know, crimes, he's done things that you might not expect of a paragon, but for reasons that you really get by the time they're revealed. Um, so, yeah, uh, by the way, uh, we're getting something in the chat here. So maybe uh, maybe I'll respond to that. Uh, I think it's been 45 minutes. It's a good time to start looking to the chat. So uh, people who are in our audience, feel free to chuck questions and comments for discussion at us. Uh, Fred says, uh, he feels, I uh, think, is a lot of SNS theorizing is about how the protagonist shouldn't be a paragon, right? Like they have to be self motivated, not selfless heroes. Oh, yeah. Okay. So, yeah. So, Fred's referring to the fact that, yeah, it is a common idea that a big difference between uh, heroic fantasy, literally, you know, where there's a hero, um, and epic and high fantasy and all that stuff, is that in certain sorcery, it's not necessarily that the hero's, um, pardon me, protagonist is a son of a bitch, but that they 
are a bit more morally gray and have personal and or mercenary motivations, to quote one of the seven aspects of Brian Murphy's definition, uh, his flexible, I should stress, definition of sword and sorcery from his great book, Flame and Crimson. Uh, so yeah, I mean, I feel like this book ticks enough boxes. I'm very comfortable calling it SNS, uh, even if Hanavar is a paragon. I'm, I'm guessing you two feel the same way, uh, Graham? Yeah, I feel the story is uh, certainly sword and sorcery. Um, and I don't think, again, Brian, Brian Murphy himself is pretty open that the seven qualities that he came up with are flexible. They're, they're not meant to be prescriptive. Um, in terms of, of Hanifar being a, a paragon, um, I felt very sim similarly to Jay, I think, in that it's not, a, it's not necessarily a problem, but I do prefer my protagonist to be a little bit more fraught, I suppose. Um, like Oliver alluded to, I'm very much uh, in a fan of, of Grimdark, and I don't need every hero to be, you know, like a Joe Abercrombie hero where they're secretly a, you know, psycho murderer in addition to kind of being a loving family man on the side, right? They, it doesn't have to be that, that sort of thing. Um, but I do like, you know, if I had a choice between Cull and Conan, I do prefer the Cull stories because I feel like it heightens a little bit of the pathos for me and a little bit of the, of the emotional payoff for the story when the ending is a little bit more dangerous for the hero, right? You know, a Cull story will end with Cull kind of questioning the very nature of reality. He questions the nature of his perception. He, he thinks, you know, M, is this, you know, how real is what I'm, is the life that I'm experiencing? That sort of thing. He has these, these deeper questions that shake him to his core and his, his grip upon his kingdom is always kind of slipping out of his hand. Whereas a Conan story is very, is, He's less of a moral paragon, certainly, than Hanabar is. He's pretty much an, an archetypal mercenary and can be, you know, surprisingly immoral at times, by I think by many of our standards. Mm -hmm. But his stories are very triumphal in, in the sense that it usually end with Conan winning something, right? Or, or triumphing right. over somebody. And I think the Hanabar stories are, are often pretty similar in the sense that, that Hanabar is both a paragon of virtue in, in, a, in a sort of patriotic sense, but he's also a paragon. It's very patriotic. Yes. Um, <laughs> Which I think, and, and I think the patriotism, I think it's easier to swallow for a lot of modern audiences who might be turned off by patriotism because he is coming from, uh, you know, he's trying to defend his people from being uh, genocided, essentially. He's, he's trying to fight against uh, imperialism on a, on a vast scale which I think really helps, you know, it's the difference between somebody who is kind of like a freedom fighter versus somebody who's an imperialist himself. And I think coming from the perspective of somebody, you know, I'm, I'm American, so I live in a country that's probably more similar to the Durban Empire in a lot of ways mm -hmm. than it would be similar to Volanis in terms of like its cultural hege hegemony in mo most of the world. So I think it's easier to uh, even even knowing that, I think it's easier for me to identify with Hanavar's patriotism and see, like, okay, I understand where he's coming from, because his people are, you know, in true danger, and they really do kind of need that that sort of, I guess, uh, collective boost, I suppose, or that collective consciousness. Yeah, there's a, there's a collective care there that I think is um, it it's apparent through the through the thread of the story because that's what Hanavar is fixated on. At the end of the day, he's fixated on liberating his people, and it's it, it's intriguing. As far as like, it's one of those things that I have. It's sort of a double edged sword for me as a queer person in the United States. Is that um, there is a, a cultural hegemony of people who think they are 
really uh, needing needing to be liberated, and they and and they're already the dominant culture. Um, so it's it's very frustrating. Um, but at the same time, I think that one of the one of the beauties of fiction is that you can you can create stories that that convey that sense of danger and that sense of threat. And uh, and I think that that is actually one of the things that Howard has done really well here is to make you feel for Hanavar and his people. That's not easy to do. Yeah, um, good point. Well, I think that's part of where the Paragon nature can make him in some ways a little bit more sympathetic than I, than I would otherwise feel towards a character who's very, you know, rah-rah, patriotism and nationalism. Yes, that, yeah, you get the empathy from him, which is yeah, interesting. Yes, he feels like he is consciously a representative, in a way, of his people. And so when you see him struggling, you see him trying to strive, you can kind of feel as if, you know, he's struggling and striving for all the, for his entire community, which feels you know, kind of fairly agreeable, I, I would say. Yeah, I think yeah, it's presented that... well. Mm-hmm, yeah, it's a very definitely a deeply likable trait. And what's neat too is um, again about spoiling specifics is uh, going forward in the book too. There's there's a story or two that make it clear, like even beyond his um, love of his people, his patriotism, there are certain values that matter to him even more than that. Uh, there's a story about uh, one of his people who maybe is not worth saving. I'll just put it that way. And it's a story that makes it clear, like, Hanavar's sort of deep humanism beneath everything, which further makes the patriotism uh, palatable. Sorry, I'm getting a fire uh, truck on uh -oh. by, so I'm just going <laughs> to mute for a sec. <laughs> Be oh, entertaining, it's... YouTube. Oh, no. Um... Oh, Eric brings up an interesting topic in the chat here, um, the topic of ongoing debate in philosophy, specifically in respect to how to define patriotism versus nationalism that is yeah that is kind of a thing that's going on right now um especially because i think the framework for those things is changing very rapidly with really with the internet yes yeah. <laughs> that's kind of kind <laughs> sorry, of hard just, yeah sorry now i'm just imagining hanavar like moderating <laughs> a forum <laughs> yeah. somehow less dramatic but <laughs> I feel like I feel like he could carry it off, but uh, but yeah, I mean, patriotism versus nationalism, right? I mean, that's been rich territory, and even in good old Captain America, who's been around a few decades to explore every angle. And I don't remember if it comes up in the book, but if it doesn't in this one, I'm sure it will in another volume. I was going like. to say we have at least four more to go through here, so uh, that's the other side of like like critiquing or commenting on like what made it into the story here versus like this vast. This vast tapestry that is that is still being thrown together before us. So, yeah, maybe I'm being uh, I'm, I'm talking too much about the bigger picture when we we should focus more on the story. But it's hard not to acknowledge that bigger picture, especially because like you know Howard. Uh, we'll get into more detail on this. Uh, I, I recorded an interview with him on Saturday where we talk about this. But for here, I'll just say uh, he definitely was planning the long game pretty early on. So, like, for example, the fact that Consul Cyprian is mentioned in here and then he's, like, a major character in a later story. Like, I think I think Howard probably had something in his notebook about that later story when he wrote this one. Uh, so it is hard to, to talk about it in isolation. Something to think about, I guess. I think that's uh, okay. Yeah. And although speaking of differences and all that jazz, 
Uh, Graham, if I remember correctly, you said that you noticed uh, some differences between the Skull number three 2020 version and uh, the 2023 Lord of a Shadow Land version. Is there anything you'd like to bring up? Um, sir, sure. So I think, and the, the difference that I remember is fairly small. So I don't have my version of the Skull in front of me at the moment. But if I recall correctly, in the original story, when he's referring to like the ranks, this is a minor thing, he's referring to like the ranks of the Durban legionaries, he used sort of invented terms, he called, I believe like an optio is called an optar in the original story, and I think he has a, a different term for... Oh, he actually has a footnote about that in the Kindle version of the, of the novel. Yeah, well, right. in, the, in the Kindle version, yeah, because he, he uses the term optio, which is, an, which is a, a Latin term right. uh, from real life. Um, but I think in the original version of the skull, he had kind of like a more fantasy fantasyized, if that's a word, more fantasticized version of the names. And I remember reading that, and because oh, that's I, interesting. Because I know the a, a little bit about about the the history kind of that he's drawing on, I I, I kind of thought to myself, um, you know, why didn't he just use the you know the, the real life terms that he's that he's drawing on? Because I think that you know people will understand, and I think it, it it makes a little bit more sense, and it. It feels, I, I guess, perhaps I have a, a prejudice against super, like, fantasized uh, terms like that, where, you know, kind of the version of, like, somebody saying frack in a... In a <laughs> oh, yeah, a for sure. Word, like that sort of thing. Um, so in the uh, published version in the novel, he uses he, he uses the uh, real the real life kind of Latin phrases, you know, they're centurion, they're optio, et cetera, et cetera. And th that's the main change that I noticed. It's fairly small, but I liked it because uh, to me it felt like it added to the the verisimilitude because I know where he's drawing these real world analogs from, and so it felt to me kind of that it made sense to just acknowledge that and use those terms. Um, which I recognize is a very sort of niche, niche concern. It's not it doesn't really have that much bearing on the story itself, but it was a, a little detail that made me smile. Ooh, that's hey, a yeah. I actually I would just want to jump in and be like I completely agree with that. That's one of my like my biggest bugbears. Um, the like Turkey City lexicon word for that is a smearp, where <laughs> a thing is completely indistinguishable from a rabbit, but it's it's called a smearp. And the reason you know it's a smear is because that's what it's called, and uh, and that's it's just it's a it's a bad habit to get into as a writer, in my personal opinion, because it tends to create confusion where there is none. And basically, when you're writing short fiction, especially like so, if you're trying to write for anything anything really under novel length, I would say even for novellas and things like that, you want to kind of avoid the paper invented language unless it's thematically resonant for the thing you're doing um so like inventing a terminology for a, a military like that when it's when those words exist if the word exists use it <laughs> especially for something complicated that someone might have to google well just for those who uh, might be curious i actually because i wrote a quick cast list <laughs> down i do have this here optar was the fantasy version in skull three an optio and here's the, i've got the footnote why not uh, in, the, in the book, an optio is the lowest ranking officer in a legion, although seniority is as important among optios as it is among centurions, meaning that seasoned ones are accorded greater respect both from their peers and superiors. Yeah. Yes. Was there anything else, uh, Graham, that you noticed? Um, that's the only one that popped out at me. There, well, there certainly could be others, but I don't believe that I, I caught them if, if that is the case. Well, I wouldn't stress because I, I don't mind uh, spoiling whatever the uh, this bit of the interview for I did on Saturday. But uh, Howard did say that like 
the majority of his changes to the chapters that he, uh, pardon me, to the stories he brought over and made into chapters in the book were him like finessing sentence structure and like that kind of like line editing, not so much uh, messing about with the stories a lot. Although, uh, for those who know the story, let me just get the name so I don't mess it up here. I do gather that the opening of Crypt of the Stars did get a heavy redo story-wise. But yeah, uh, otherwise, that's the preceding chapter to this one. Um, but otherwise, yeah, it was mostly line editing stuff. So yeah, I feel a little funny because when I first announced this, I was like, yeah, we'll compare the two stories. And then like since then, I've discovered it's, it's mostly line editing. <laughs> so uh, I made a big promise without knowing if there was meat uh, to chew on there. <laughs> Whoops. All right. Um, so this has been going for an hour. I think that's a good run for something like this. But just in case, are there any questions? Anybody in the audience? Anybody? Any hands up? Anybody in the chat? Come on, quick, quick. All right. <laughs> I see no typing. So uh, I'll take it as uh, everyone feeling satiated by this conversation. Um, all right. Well, Jay and Gra Oh, nope. Somebody's typing. <laughs> 11th hour safe. <laughs> I have no questions. Sorry. Right, that was, well, good timing. Really excellent yeah. timing, Javier. <laughs> Confirmed. All right. Well, in that case, then, um, Jay, unless there's something you really want to bring up? I feel like we pretty much covered it. I had I had a lot of fun. This was this was a stimulating conversation to have, and and uh, I feel like I I absorbed a lot. So awesome, Graham. Is there anything any last little thing you want to bring up? Uh, no, I agree with Jay. It was a really great conversation. I was glad to be able to participate in it with everybody. Awesome. Well, yeah, I really enjoyed it too. I think this was a good inaugural chat. I hope. That maybe one a month. I don't know. I won't make any big promises, but I feel like we should do more of these. These are these are good, and definitely like keep the focus on contemporary stories, whether it's contemporary means you know this year or in the last I don't know ten. But yeah, definitely like let's let's talk about some new SMS because I think it's fair to say all three of us could chew over uh, Liber or Howard or Moorcock's uh, earlier works uh, all day long. But th that's gotten a lot of uh, column inches in the sword and sorcery scene. And I, I think I'm excited more to talk about contemporary stuff. So yeah. Uh, all right. Well, thank you to everybody who has attended this. Thank you. If you are watching or listening to this in the future, uh, share the YouTube link around. That'd be really cool. We'd love it if this became a popular dealie. And uh, if you're particularly, if you're an editor of a magazine, but you don't have to be, if you're, if you're listening to this and thinking, Oh, I've got opinions about sword and sorcery. I'd like to get in on this. Then, uh, you know, I'm pretty easy to find probably with a stick somewhere online. And maybe we can get you on the panel for whatever the next one's going to be. I think I mentioned, uh, gosh, I don't have the title handy, but Stephen Graham Jones, uh, uh, Stephen Graham Jones's story in Swords in the Shadows, Cullen Bunn's anthology that came out this year as a potential candidate for discussion. And um, yeah, I, I think I think I'm gonna th I think I'm gonna call it just this once. I'm just gonna say, yeah, that will be the next one whenever it takes place. I don't know if you're hearing this on YouTube wondering, well, how do I know when this takes place? Well, we'll uh, join uh, the Nest Discord, which I guess we'll put a link to in the description. Um, yep. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, I think I'm going to call it. We'll, we'll go with Stephen Graham Jones', Jones story from uh, Sword in the Shadows. So if you want to be up on what we're discussing next time, that would be the story to find and read. It is available in uh, EPUB, etc. formats for not too dear a price uh, currently. So yep. All right. Thanks again uh, to Graham and Jay for taking part in this. I really appreciate you guys. And thank you to those who were here uh, funning about in the chat and letting us know how many questions they don't have. <laughs> <laughs>